This episode is brought to you by Fooley Gemstones. We are a research institution. We study where gems come from. We study how we can use them to solve, to cure diseases, to solve environmental problems. And it is gemstones that can that can do this. They are very stable materials. And if you can figure out ways of, of using them to address social and economic problems, then that's great. That's what we're doing. The one that we probably are always looking for in the world is a ruby. And I was uh, had a wonderful family uh, from New York that donated uh, through my committee 130 carat Mozambique ruby to the Smithsonian. Uh, the stone is beautiful, but it uh, had been heated. So we've never seen a gemstone of 100 carat in a ruby. And rubies have been identified for thousands of years, so we know it's there. So that's the only one we probably haven't seen. I'm Carol Holton, the voice of jewellery. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm an author and broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So join me as I tell sparkly tales and meet all sorts of people delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. I've come over to LA. I'm sitting here with Dr. Aaron Celestian, the curator of the German Mineral Hall at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. And we are sitting in his vault, surrounded by gemstones. We're here because last night, a new exhibition, 100 Carat Icons of the Gem World, opened last night at a very dazzling um, event in Los Angeles, which was amazing. Aaron, thank you very much for hosting us this thank, morning. Thank you so much for being here. This is a pleasure. After a late night last night. Yeah, very couple late nights, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason we're in the vault is because although the exhibition literally opened to the public this morning, it's got so many people in that we can't record in there. It's, it's already <laughs> packed. Uh, as soon as the museum opened, people made a beeline for the vaults just to see the gems. And that's great. I wish we can be in there all the time, but, you know, we got to give it up uh, yes. every once in a while. So hence we're, we're hidden in the vault, which is incredible. And I'm looking at an amazing array of different uh, mineral specimens, crystals of different colours, but nothing in here compares to what is in the exhibition. Yes, that is right. The exhibition is unreal when we were putting when Robert Prokop and I were putting it together now Robert Prokop is one of the trustees of the Natural History Museum that's right he's a trustee of the Natural mm. History Museum he is also a jewelry designer and acquirer of fine gemstones and he has been instrumental in getting the stones that we have on display out there and why was it important to have it at the museum I mean these I, I will be posting pictures okay these are Huge <laughs> lozenges of um, every colour you can imagine. There are, what, uh, two dozen, 24 different gemstones of 100 carats? Yes, there's 17 over 100 carat gemstones in the vault and outside of the vault, because we knew that there was going to be a lot of lines and a lot of waiting, we also have large stones. Some of them are over 100 carats outside so that people can still experience it before they actually get into the vault. And it's just a preview. And the preview is quite stunning. I'd be proud of just the preview if I were just doing that. But uh, it's just, yeah, there's about a couple dozen stones. And what I love in the preview is you have one showcase with one carat, 10 carats, <laughs> 20 carats. So you can see this progression up to 100 carats. Right. And actually what, what it weighs... And actually, I have to say, for any possible people getting engaged, maybe don't look in that because then you <laughs> the one carrot looks so tiddly in comparison. Oh. Yeah, I didn't think about that when we were putting it together, but... <laughs> it could be a disappointment. It could be. <laughs> um, but the, for instance, there is this extraordinary emerald. What is the size of that emerald? Is it like two, three inches yeah, across? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's about two or three inches across and about two inches tall about an inch and a half thick of just the most beautiful saturated green I've ever seen in my entire life. It's a gorgeous stone. 
It is on display all by itself in the vault. Uh, in fact, all the gemstones in the vault are, have their own case because they are so immensely important. And the emerald sits right behind a really important gemstone called the Yonker Diamond as well. And the Yonker has quite a history, doesn't it? It does. I was excited when we when we found the Yonker Diamond because it had been missing for over 40 years. And where was it missing? I mean, who, <laughs> who doesn't know where their 100-carat diamond is? Well, fortunately, somebody knew. <laughs> it was missing from the world. So it was the, a quick history of the Yonker Diamond. It was, it was found by the Yonker family in 1934 in South Africa. And then it was sold to Harry Winston in 1935. And it was cut. It took a year to cut by uh, a jeweler named, or a gem cutter named Kaplan. And he was the first American gem cutter to cut a diamond over 100 carats. And so Harry Winston gave him this task to do this. It took a year to figure out how to cut and design the stones. And in 1935, the first cut was made. And the Yonker One diamond, so there's 13 stones that are eventually cut. The Yonker One was the largest. And the initial weight was about 146 carats. It was then recut to improve clarity to produce uh, a better looking stone to 125 carats, a little bit over 125 carats. And that's the stone weight today. It was then shown at the American Museum of Natural History for three days and only three days and then went back to Harry Winston's collection. It eventually worked its way to the King of Egypt in 1948 or 49. And then he had it in his royal collection. King Farouk. Yes, King Farouk, yes. And then he had it in his collection for a while until he was overthrown and exiled from Egypt. And then it went missing. That was 1951-1952. And from, 19, from that time period up until 1977, I have no information about where the stone was. And it appeared in Nepal in 1977 in the queen of Nepal's collection. She then sold it at auction for $2.5 million. And it was an anonymous buyer and nobody had seen it since. No word, no nothing. And time has passed. So how did it come to the museum is that uh, two years ago, we were doing another gem exhibit. And it was also very nice and, and very posh and fancy. And there was some gem collectors that came to me and said, Hey, Aaron, we have a variety of unique gemstones that are of really interesting cut quality and color, like a beautiful grandidiorites, just uncommon ones that you don't normally see. And I was like, this is exciting. I'd love to work with you. It didn't really pan out into an exhibit, but we remained friends. And about a year after we met, his father died. And then they told me after his father died that it was his father that bought the Yonker one from the Queen of Nepal. And since we had been already working together, and his father kept it totally secret, didn't tell anybody about this. And so the sons were like, hey, we got to tell the world about this mm -hmm. diamond. It's a world famous stone. Nobody's seen for a long time. And they had been already working with me and they trusted me. So they wanted to have L.A. to be the first place that the world sees the Yonker one in over 40 years. It's incredible. And it is to the viewer's eye. It's just exquisitely perfect. And Subtly cut, don't you think? Yes, it's very subtly cut. Yeah, it's not a, a really dynamic cut like some of like a modern stone that you see today, but it's such a prominent stone, and the cutting is absolutely perfect. I think. And you've obviously examined it, and there is nothing in there, is there? It is just diamond, just it's, clear, crystal clear diamond. It is totally clear. I mean, there's nothing there. So as a researcher. I like seeing inclusions in diamonds because that's where the story of the earth comes from. But I also appreciate when a diamond is so clean and so clear that nothing gets away of the refraction of light through the mm -hmm. stone. It's absolutely such a gorgeous mm -hmm. specimen. So that greets you as you come into the exhibition. But what really struck me the first time I went into the vault was just these pops of colour, yeah. extraordinary pops of colour. You know, the clearest, beautiful rubellite, um, <laughs> sapphires in every colour. You've got a huge yeah. 100 carat pink and a 100 carat yellow yeah. and blue. And a colour change sapphire as well. And a colour change <laughs> sapphire. And these are stones that not only do people not ever see, but to see them together is quite something. Yeah. As far as I know, this is the first time this has happened. Having such a large exhibit of everything over 100 carats of all range of species of, of gemstones. It's, it's amazing. It really is. Yes. And I've never seen it. Okay. I've never seen a hundred carat Pariba, but I don't think <laughs> many people have, have they? No, they have. I've never seen one until the show either. It is, it was absolutely outstanding. Mm. And so when we were putting it together, 
I was really worried that we wouldn't be able to pull it off. Uh, how do you get this many stones of that size and quality in one place at one time? And it took us a year and a half to do it of constant work, of begging and pleading with people to loan their stones to us. And I think it's just it's just amazing. And why do you think it's important that you put on an exhibition like that? There's a couple of reasons for that. Mm. The first reason is to be really outspoken about gemstones, like really stand out from the crowd because the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County hasn't been known to be a premier destination for exhibiting fine jewelry and fine specimens. Even though we're in the basically in the middle of LA, surrounded by Hollywood, surrounded by amazing jewelry designers and gem cutters, we still haven't risen to that level of importance, even though we have probably the second or third largest gem collection in the country. And so we're, we're trying to bring awareness to what the museum has and what it's what it's capable of. But there's a another facet to that. The other part is that we are a research institution. We study where gems come from. We study how we can use them to solve, to cure diseases, to solve environmental problems. And it is gemstones that can that can do this. They are very stable materials. And if you can figure out ways of, of using them to address social and economic problems, then that's great. That's what we're doing. So how can a gemstone be positive economically for people? So gemstones are, are extremely stable materials. That's why we use them in, in jewelry. They're hard. They're resistant to weathering. They're resistant to damage. And there are some gemstones that you can put into a liquid. For example, bonitoite. That is a rare kind of gemstone, but beautiful blue color. It only grows in California. And it it's a barium silicate mineral. But we're working on ways of removing the barium from the crystal, from the gem, and replacing it with lead. So toxic lead. And having that completely sequestered and entombed within the gemstone. And then it's stuck in the gemstone. It's not going to weather out. It's not going to erode out. And it's now removed from the environment and no longer toxic to people. Even if you accidentally ingested it, it wouldn't break down in the body. You would just secrete it out. And so we're using those kinds of ideas, using the gemstone properties as a way of cleaning up environmental disasters or mining lithium in much more economic ways or even treating diseases of the human body as well. I guess this is um, something that a lot of minds are quite aware of at the moment, aren't they? And they're trying to capture carbon. Yeah. And so how are you um, helping mining lithium? Because obviously there has to be a lot of lithium. People want mobile phones, computers. (laughs) I mean, that, I would argue, is definitely more environmentally destructive than gem mining. I would agree with that. Mm. I think that's a fair assumption to make. Right now, the demand for lithium is outrageously high. And so environmental mining is a secondary aspect of getting the lithium out of the ground. And so we're, we're aware of that and we're trying to address that. So one thing that we're doing is designing minerals that can absorb lithium out of the seawater. So seawater has a lot of lithium in it, but it's not economic because it's just so poorly concentrated. But if you had a mineral that can just selectively absorb the lithium out of seawater, then it doesn't matter what the concentration of the lithium in the seawater is. It's just how much water you pass over it. And so these minerals spontaneously absorb lithium, no energy input whatsoever. And then you just take carbonic acid. So we're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere to turn into carbonic acid. And then you treat the gemstone with that carbonic acid. The acid pushes the lithium out and turns it to lithium carbonate. So the carbonic acid stays with the lithium at that point and turns it to battery grade lithium carbonate that can then be sold to batter, directly sold to battery manufacturing companies. So basically just a single step, much more environmentally friendly way of removing mm-hmm. lithium. There's no digging into the ground. There's no wasting of water. There's if, no using, because mercury is used in lithium mining, isn't it? Mercury, hydrochloric acids, hydrofluoric acids, hard rock mining, digging deep, deep holes into the ground. So having these different approaches can really help. And so we're working, we're trying to work with desalination plants so that as they're desalinating, they're also able to mine the precious metals that are in it. I was going to say, how did you, I I thought cups of seawater going over a mineral. You've got to do it large scale. We got to go large scale. We can't do large scale at the museum, but we can establish how you use minerals and gemstones 
to take it to that next level、mm-hmm. so that somebody can actually do it. So that's a force for good. I think so. And I, I'm very interested in the healing aspect as well because I think what strikes me always about gemstones is it makes you think about the world, think about the earth, think about your place in it, and that's what human beings have always done with gemstones. The ancient Egyptians ground down、um, minerals and ingested them as a medicine. They、yeah. they made paste to put over injuries and wounds. To heal, and you are using gemstones to heal. Yes,、uh, and not in a dissimilar way as it has been done in the past. What we're doing is we're taking some gemstones, some minerals, and treating very specific diseases. So one of them is hyperkalemia, which is too much potassium in the bloodstream. Now, hyperkalemia is pretty common. Recent statistics show that one in every nine people on the planet suffers from hyperkalemia. To a degree or so, but it can be deadly.、Uh, you need potassium to regulate muscle function in your body. Your heart is a muscle, and so if you can't, if you have too much potassium and you can't control your muscles, you could have actually, you could, you could just have a heart attack and die. Go to cardiac arrest. And so, having a way of regulating potassium in the bloodstream is actually critical. And we found some minerals that can that can do that.、Uh, these are a class of minerals called. Uh, zeolites, and as long as they're in a powder form, you can ingest this, and it just goes through your body and starts absorbing potassium, and only absorbs potassium, and then you just excrete it out. So if you're having a hyperkalemic attack, you can ingest this mineral, and it will save your life. And so we're looking at different ways of applying that to other kinds of diseases,、uh, developing ways of targeting cancer therapeutics, like delivering drugs directly to the cancer instead of the drug the The chemotherapy delivered to the entire body. There's got to be a way to deliver the drug directly to the cancer site, and that will be a much healthier way to treat the diseases. So we're looking at all those different aspects. That's really exciting,、yeah. and it's extraordinary thought that a gemstone will save your life. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, to all these people who think jewels and jewelry are. You know,、um, frivolous and not important—they <laughs> are important. They、yeah. can save lives. They are. They're they're important. Not only, I mean, if if they make you feel better, then like I've been told a million times that laughter is the best medicine. And it's just this: if they make you feel better, then they also can help you be healthier as well. Well,、um, there, lots of different faces to it. I mean, there is、um, the ancient Greeks believed in color therapy, didn't they? Yeah. And just looking at those gemstones and getting <laughs> lost in the, that color—that has to be. Um, a sort of mind improving, uplifting thing to do. Don't、Definitely. you think? I think so too. Yeah. yeah. Going along with the medical、uh, work, we're also experimenting on ways of how kidney stones form in the body. So kidney stones are just minerals, and how they form and how they not form might be ways of other curing that sort of problem. Now, lots of people suffer from kidney stones that thought to be caused by bacteria or too much. Concentrations of oxalate in the body. The jury's still out of what actually causes them, but if it is a bacteria that causes kidney stone formation, and we think it is, and so there are gemstones that are antimicrobial bits, and so we're looking at ways of using gemstones to attack certain species of bacteria in the kidney to prevent prevent kidney stone formation.、Mm-hmm. So the idea is that ki- that bacteria assembles these crystals into rock. And that's not unheard of. We you know, there's coral that does this. There's they're not bacteria, but they're organisms that assemble minerals into a rock. There are stromatolites that are、uh, single-celled organisms that solidify materials into rock. And same thing might be happening in the human body, where this bacteria is assembling minerals into a rock that you can't pass, and it causes extreme pain. So finding minerals that can be antimicrobial to those specific、mm-hmm. bacteria and not harm any other bacteria in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the magic thing. That is the magic、it? thing. Is not harming anything else, right? Because so many of our treatments now do do wreck other parts of the body in the process. That's right, and that's the great thing about minerals is that they really are targeted for just a singular function. So would this be eventually put in a pill form? The mineral would be in some sort of, or would it be ground paste that you ingest or? Powder. I think it would be a powder, but、mm. it would be a powder that could be suspended in a liquid, so you can drink it. It could be in a powdered pill、mm. form. And how long before you think that might be? Yes. In mainstream use. So that's a that's a trickier part、um, because presumably <laughs> <laughs> you need finance.、Right? Yeah, you need you need finance. You need companies that can synthesize it in a purity form because you don't want to use the natural stuff because we. I mean, people are collecting gemstones. You don't want to crush up a 100 carat pair of eba just to ingest into your body. 
I'd like to know what it tastes like. (laughs) Wouldn't you want to know what a Pariba tasted like? Yeah, we'll do that for another show. (laughs) Yeah, so we're trying to, you need quality control, so you have to synthesize these materials in order to have them as a pharmaceutical agent. But then there's also the other side, like the Federal Drug and Administration, the FDA in the United States, a lot of their work is on organic chemistry. So convincing them that inorganic chemistry, inorganic minerals is a viable approach to to disease treatments and it's a viable approach to developing new pharmaceuticals, that's also a challenge too. So there's lots of challenges to overcome, mm-hmm. but time is, I think, on our side. We're doing work very rapidly and um, I think it'll be maybe 10 years or so mm-hmm. before you start seeing a lot more of these on the market. As a scientist, what prompted you to go in that direction? So before I came to the museum, I've only been at the museum now for about eight years. And before coming here, I was a professor of geology at Western Kentucky University. I was a tenured professor there. And I was teaching students environmental chemistry. I was teaching them geology. And a lot of them were going into oil and gas or in the coal mining. And we all know that those are not healthy environments, especially in eastern Kentucky, uh, the Appalachian region, just a lot of coal and a lot of lot of health issues. I was feeling disheartened by that. I was feeling like I'm training these people to go into the mines and they're just going to be treated terribly. And I was a part of that. So I started to move away from that kind of stuff. I started moving. It's like, okay, now I'm doing all this research. I felt my philosophy changed and I wanted to do more things that were more positively impacting to the world because I was feeling very depressed at the time with my students going to mines. And so that changed, that changed everything. So I decided everything I do from here on out, if there is not a, a positive impact, a positive way that we can use minerals to help the environment, to help cure diseases, to help remediation of certain things. If it doesn't fit those criteria, I'm not interested in working on those projects. And so that's what really prompted me to come to the museum is that I have this huge collection now to draw from. It's basically just this massive library of every possible mineral and gem that exists. And I can use that to draw inspiration from, I can use that to do experimental work from, and to really push forward this idea of using minerals to to help. That's why I'm here. And now I have a platform to do that. I can showcase a lot of gemstones, draw people into the museum, not only show these flashy, absolutely stunning specimens, mm-hmm. but also show them the other side of, of what minerals and gems can mm-hmm. be used for. But it also, I think when you have, we saw lots of um, children this morning in the, in the vault, I mean, that has to prompt their thoughts about the world around them. And and when they hear about climate change, yeah. they're going to take it more seriously. If they think, oh, my God, the world can produce that. Yeah. We've got to protect the habitat and environment from which it can be produced. That's right. We, we do mention things like that. We're not quite so direct in that messaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think... If you if you hit that messaging head on, like in your face kind of messaging, then people tend to be a little bit more standoffish. Mm-hmm. And so we try to be a little bit more subtle. It's like, here's how these things can be used. Here's how it can address certain kinds of problems. And sending the messaging that way of how these materials can be used to help rather than here are the problems. Here's what we shouldn't be doing, but here's how we can help to make it better that secondary message, I think, is a little bit more palatable for most of our visitors. You're probably right for all of us, because <laughs> actually when you're told um, the things you're doing wrong, that we all are, and that's hammered into you, it's very hard to think, well, how can I solve that? How can, what, what can I do right. as, a, as a single person? Right. I, I try to be solution forward rather than like presenting solutions mm. first, rather than stating all the problems first. Uh, of course, there's lots of problems in the world, and we definitely can't use gemstones for every single one of them, even though I'd like to. But having that sort of approach, I think, is a is a bit easier to digest. Mm-hmm. And now, California is such has been such a repository of gems, metal, minerals, hasn't it? It has. Um, and so, how many in the show are are, are kind of local? None. None. <laughs> <laughs> None of them are in the show are local. It's not that we tried, didn't try. Okay. I really was looking for a, just a magnificent rubellite from the Southern California mines. I know there's probably one out there, but I just couldn't find the one that, that fit the color saturation that I wanted, that fit the cut that I wanted and the size that I wanted. There's lots of beautiful, I mean, of course, it's a stunning uh, 
Rubelites out there from the Palette District. But it's just none of them really fit the bill of, of the show. Now, in our normal collection, we do have loads of California specimens on display all okay. the time. Is there a Morganite in the show? There is a Morganite in the and show. And that's not... That's from Brazil. That's from Brazil. Yeah. Because Morganite came originally, was named from California sources, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, from J.P. Morgan, mm. uh, the financer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually a mineral called beryl, but the gem name, variety, the variety Morganite, is named after J.P. Morgan. Mm. If somebody said to you, well, I want the best three Californ- stones that California could produce, what would those be? First on my list would be Benito White. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it only grows in California. So you mm-hmm. have to have, if you're interested in California gems, you have to have a Benito White. The next one would be, of course, a Rubellite mm-hmm. would be the second one because the, the Pala mines have produced the f- just extraordinary amounts of Rubellite over the last century. The third one, that's a bit of a challenge. It could be anything, really. Uh, I would pick the Garnet from the Little Three Mine. These garnets are just outstanding quality. They're um, a Spessar team garnet. They have this fire orange color to them. They are really just absolutely gorgeous. You can't miss them when you see them. They stand out. So probably those three would would be on the three top gemstones that I would pick from the California area. So what color is Benitoite? Benitoite is a blue color, probably the the color I'd most likely measure it against would be a tanzanite. So it looks like a. it has the same color as a tanzanite. Now, Aaron has found me one. He dug into one of the hundreds of pull-out drawers here. And Benitoite is a lovely soft blue. It's a very chic blue. It is. It's like a lilac blue, as you say. But I think less strong than tanzanite. I agree. Softer and prettier, actually. Oh. Don't say that to any Tanzanite lovers. (laughs) (laughs) Really pretty colour. And then this is, you found me a um, garnet. That's right. Which is very orangey, yes. That's from the Little Three Mine. That's really flashing away, isn't it? It is. It's such a a unique colour of garnet. And garnets, we all think of garnet as quite red because we have that sort of Victorian Mm. idea of garnet in, in the UK. Okay. Um, which probably a lot of it foiled and, and very sort of blood red. Mm. And this isn't. This is much more orange red. Yes, yeah. Mm. And then... The rubellite. The rubellite, very pink. They're very pink. That's a pretty classic colour from Southern California. Okay, so none of these are the colours that we think. These are sun-kissed gemstones under the Californian <laughs> sun. They are shining brighter and... More vibrant colours than we think of, actually. Yeah. This is really pink. You could think it's a pink sapphire. They might, yeah. That's incredible. Thank you. Yeah. And I'll post pictures of these. What is it then from the earth in California, you think, that produces <laughs> that, that so colour? These are remnants of prehistoric volcanic events. So these gemstones, the garnet, the, the rubellite, the morganite that grows in the Southern California area, they formed in ancient volcanic chambers. So the volcanoes are erupting, they're producing lava flows and doing what they do best, producing spectacular shows. But underneath the surface of the earth, what's happening is that minerals are crystallizing. And as water that's down in the depths and lava interact or magma interact, they slowly form these gemstones. And tourmaline forms at these very late stages of the volcanoes. So as the volcano is dying on the surface, it's actually underneath the ground is producing these magnificent gemstones. And that's where they come from in Southern California is these dying volcanoes. And actually, I suppose talking about positivity coming from these things, you could say California was built up really by mining metal and gemstones. Yes, it has, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All the cities, the yeah. people coming here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been formed by gemstones. It has been. The gold rush started mm. in Los Angeles area in the San Gabriel Mountains, and then quickly moved north to the uh, to Northern California, to the mother lode that we now know it, in the gold belts up there. While that was happening, people were also mining the minerals for gemstones as well. So there's so much happening in the 1800s and early 1900s in Southern California that was drawing people from all over the world mm. to come here and live and mine. And San Francisco was built up on the gold rush, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Now, for anyone wanting to study more about stones and gemology, what do you recommend that people do? Uh, If they're interested in professionally, 
then I definitely recommend uh, going to the Gemological Institute of America mm-hmm. and getting their gemology degree down there. In fact, in the early 70s and 80s, the GEIA was part of uh, Los Angeles, and they mm-hmm. spent a lot of time here bringing students into the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County mm-hmm. because we have such an amazing gemstone collection. Mm-hmm. They later moved down to Southern California near San Diego where they have their main headquarters. So there's San Diego. There's also, they have uh, headquarters in New York as well. So either either coast. Uh, and they also have online programs. But the University of Arizona also has a gemology bachelor's of science degree. And so if you're interested in more of the geology, the science of gemstones, then that would be my recommendation. Okay. And for any of the If Jules Could Talk listeners who might be coming through Los Angeles soon, this is on till April. Yes, on to April. What date? Do you know? April 21st. April 21st. And is there anything special happening? Any talks? Can they join in with anything? There... It won't be anything happening with talks. I'll be doing a lot of Instagram uh, okay. stories and Instagram posts so that if you're not able to come, you'll definitely see uh, some amazing things like behind the Some things that I'll be posting is like behind the scenes of the exhibit development as well. Great. Um, so you can see how it, how it happens. Okay. So we have to follow you. Yes, of course. The last thing I'd like to know from you, what is, what is your favorite? What is the one that you itch every night to take home, put in your <laughs> pocket and take out of the vault? Um, oh my gosh. I, I have pretty big pockets. So <laughs> <laughs> That's good for the hunger characters. <laughs> Probably the gemstone that I would take from this exhibit would be the emerald. I think I just can't get over you the size. because I'm taking that Oh, one. my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The emerald seconds. <laughs> oh, actually, I could take the scepter um, sapphire. You love the scepter sapphire. I sapphires. love the scepter oh, sapphire. Oh, yeah, the scepter sapphire. Describe is, that. Describe yeah. that one. That's a unique cut mm. in that it preserves the actual crystal form as it came out of the ground. Mm. And all they did was just polish off the crystal faces so that you can see better into the gemstone. They polished all the faces except for one. So they polished off the, the top and the bottom terminations. And you see this very long uh, prism faces. It probably stands about two inches to three inches tall. You got a point on the top and point on the bottom. But there's one face that was not polished. And it was done so on purpose so you would see that this is the rough crystal form of it, but really is cut into a gemstone. It's beautiful. Yeah. So, okay, I'll do your deal. I'll take that one and you can have the emerald. <laughs> I'll take the emerald. What's the deal? Let's do it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Aaron, for allowing us into the vault and hosting us at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. That's my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> So now I've come up to Sunset Boulevard and I'm sitting in the home of Robert Prokop, who is a co-curator of the exhibition The Great 100 Carat Gems. He's on the Board of Trustees of the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Plus, he is featured in my book, The New Stone Age. If any of you have that book and open it up and you see this incredible selenite fireplace, quartz and selenite fireplace, we are sitting in front of that. So if you hear a little echo, it's a very good vibration because we are surrounded by crystals and selenite and it's quite magnificent. And I'll put up pictures so you can see it. Robert, thank you very much for hosting us today. Thank you for having me. And Robert is a jeweller who, um, his studio is in Beverly Hills, but we had to come up here today to be by the selenite So, Robert, where did the idea of the exhibition come from? I've been very fortunate to be a part of several museums, of our great museums, of everything from acquisition, restoration, recreation, and exhibitions. And in the exhibition that I did with Los Angeles County Museum two years ago, I was a co-curator with Dr. Aaron, we had a show called Brilliance. And Brilliance was to identify different species and locations in the best of. The best of a Muzo emerald, the best of a Sri Lanka sapphire. It did not have to do with size. It had to do with what is the identification of color from that origin. When we met two years ago to look of what is possible, we always want to look at what is the impossible. Never say never. We should look at what could be done that no one else has done. So the idea of showing gems 
over 100 carat that are natural and being able to collect one of every species of the finest quality was a high goal to reach and going to be quite the treasure hunt. So that's how the, our mission statement began. And when you say natural, you're referring to the fact that nothing is heat treated? Well, all gemstones, a majority have some kind of uh, treatment to them. They could have radiation as they do in uh, black diamonds. They could also have heat treatment. They could be infused with different materials to fill in uh, fractures and create uh, a more enhanced color. In sapphire, we presume that over 95% of sapphire and ruby, corundum, have been heat treated. And this process has been going on for over 200 years. So being natural has to be free from all treatment. Which is, as you say, unbelievably rare. And very rare for a stone of over 100 carats. Yes. And so how did you start the treasure hunt? We started the treasure hunt knowing that I was aware of several diamonds that were over 100 carat and available to be seen in the museum. I was aware of a sapphire. And I knew there's a few that we, uh, different species of barrels that we'd be able to acquire or to be able to uh, have loaned that were gem quality and natural. So we had a base in our mind of a few different stones that were possible to start the base and then continue with uh, looking at elsewhere, new developments in mining that have uh, brought us larger stones and looking in all parts of the world that what is, uh, what is someone safe or what is now being uncovered. So you put a call out to mine owners, to stone owners, everywhere. Yes, correct. Every museum, every stone dealer, every broker, every miner, anything that we could possibly open up an opportunity for something the world hasn't seen. And that was one of the criteria too. What has the world never seen before? On top of being rare of 100 carat and natural, and the world has never seen. So you do have the Jonker One which has been seen, but not for nearly half a century, about 40 or so years. It and that, and that is the only one, and that's actually why we chose it. <laughs> because I had the privilege of working with Ian Belfour and Famous Diamonds, and I'm participating to be the editor of this final uh, book of edition six. And in there, Lord Belfour always expressed that the Yonker one he thought was the most beautiful cut diamond in the world. Which so, is quite something. This is a book, Robert's referring to a book called Famous Diamonds, mm-hmm. which is the authoritative book on diamonds. Yes. So it was a little close to my heart when they actually had contacted Dr. Aaron at the museum, see if they would be uh, interested in uh, putting an exhibition, and it was just coincidental. Very so nice. that was our choice in diamonds, and instead of getting two or three different varieties of diamonds, we already had the best. And what were you surprised? What didn't you think you'd find that you found? I didn't think I would find a 100 carat periba that's natural and a fine quality. From Brazil? Well, most of the finds are all from Mozambique. Brazilian ones, anything over a size were either not a pleasant color and imperfect. So the only way we could ever find a 100 carat stone would be from Mozambique. And we happen to find one that's basically flawless and a gem. I never thought we'd find such a thing. There's a couple sapphires. Usually in a museum, you may see one sapphire that could be blue, could be 100 carat, could be heated. But there's only a couple museums that have one sapphire that's unheated over 100 carat. In this particular exhibition, we have six. We have a bubblegum pink, a beautiful pink, it's 100 carat. It's amazingly vibrant. Incredible and intense pink. We have a 184 carat blue sapphire. We have something that was a real surprise is we've already been looking for these teal color sapphires around the world. And over the last 20 years, it's been some new discoveries. We found a stone that's so unusual, a combination of color shift, color change, where the stone turns from purple to blue to green with great clarity, with great brilliance. Great color change, and as every laboratory would say, it's a miracle. So we had that was our greatest surprise, Mm -hmm. uh, the miracle. And how does that happen? How does one sapphire have the capacity to change color? I mean, when it's grown in the earth, presumably the other sapphires around might not necessarily have that trait. Well, when we have color change, we're looking at the 
the elements that are inside of a sapphire. When it's when it's blue, we're looking at iron and titanium. Different elements bring out different colors, and depending on the light source, whether it's a warm light or a cool light, like a fluorescent light, the elements, these molecules react. And in this particular one, which is very rare, generally the whole stone would change. In this one, we'll have the center of it will be blue and the ends would be green. And then we put it in under a different light source and the center of it turns purple. Then in a different light, the whole stone turns green. So it's a very unusual, one of the great rarities of the world. I was talking with Dr. Aaron mm -hmm. earlier about the healing qualities and how he's using gemstones mm. um, for medical um, research. And you've actually got a sapphire called the Healing Blue. Yes. Now, why is that called the Healing Blue? The Healing Blue Sapphire is his name. It's uh, really one of the splendors of Sri Lanka. So I would see the color and the size. But during a time it was mine, Everyone who ever held the stone always thought of amazing healing properties, which I truly didn't understand. But my dear uh, friend, and who's like family to me, he went through a very tragic area in his life where he lost his wife and acquired the stone afterwards. So not only did it bring him uh, great healing through his mind and his heart, he also went on to finish a hospital that he was building for children in Sri Lanka in his wife's name. Like that, through a few things of uh, his family and through uh, other friends that have held this stone, everyone felt the the stone every time you hold it has some property, and, and I say it's a combination because it's so large. You have this weight in your hand, mm -hmm. and you could feel its temperature. And I think it's also a combination of this color blue, this cornflower blue. It's like when we look into a beautiful ocean, how we feel and. And so it acquired this name from everyone who held it. That's amazing. So that it's a it's a modern story of healing. Mm. It's not something attached to history, which makes it very, very relevant for now, mm. doesn't it? Yes, it does. And you can imagine actually looking into that blue. I mean, it's like the sky, the sea. It's, it is life, isn't it? I should say I'm a sponsor of uh, the Smithsonian uh, with the space program of Destination Moon, and we study the solar systems, we see there's no other minerals like it is on Earth. And Dr. Aaron tells us that there is nothing like these stones anywhere in the universe that we could see. And when we look at Earth and we look at our minerals and we look at these gemstones of different colors, it's really these God creations of treasures that are inside this Earth. There's no explanation how all these elements form these minerals that create such these beauties. And unique for our planet. No, it's very unique to our planet and nothing else in the solar system that we know of. And actually, when I viewed it, I couldn't help but feel like it's, it's this most magnificent sort of call to arms, really, for people to look at them and realise that the Earth has produced these and we need to protect the habitat in which they're produced. Mm. So it's an exhibition that I guess as many people as possible should get to see, to feel that and to feel that strongly. Yes, I think so. You look at these unique sapphires, even from the other one called the Miracle, and you look at the other one, the Splendor of Sri Lanka, the Healing Blue, it's something you'll never see or the world has never seen. And like you said, it is of a, a, a modern time today that you could appreciate the sense of when you see these colors and this brilliance. Everybody who listens to the podcast knows that I like green. Could you tell me about the Peridot? The Peridot is owned by the museum. Mm -hmm. It's in their permanent collection. And being a Peridot of over 200 carats in this deep olive green is a real rarity. It's amazing. It's got very few facets, actually. It's mm. not highly faceted. So you do sink into a pool of green. And there's a reason for that. The crown facets that are on the top, when you have this deep green, if you were to put more facets on it, it would be bringing in more light and you wouldn't be able to see this consistency of this deep green. Mm -hmm. So the cutter was very uh, intelligent in its techniques. And when you walk into the vault, you know, you get that pop of green from the peridot. There's the yellow, the pink. You've got a case of sort of pastel shades which are quite exquisite. Mm. Um, one you called the Great White. Behind the diamond is the Crown of Columbia, which is a 240-carat emerald. And next to that case are four other barrels. So mm. emerald is from the species barrel. And behind this case, we have the largest case, which is showing four different varieties of barrel. And 
one variety of beryl is gozonite. This means it's free from other impurities in the stone, free from different minerals that form the color. So when we have chromium that is in an emerald that helps form that color, this gozonite is free from there. There's always some element in, the, in a stone that will create that color but this one is actually completely white. Uh, Aaron named the stone, calling it the Great White Emerald. <laughs> and then we have an aqua. Rarity of a large aqua is not surprising that we see them much larger. But in an aquamarine, where the color comes from is a true color where the discovery would see this bright ocean. And we have a sense in these aquamarines that they're either too light naturally or they've been enhanced and they're too dark. So our mission is to find the true blue color of aqua, a stone that has a brilliance of a diamond and a clarity that is flawless. And this stone happens to have that. So these may not be the rarest and most expensive stones in the collection, but it's the true color and top quality that we were looking for. Mm -hmm. And the other stone is uh, we'll call it Borgonite. Uh, the other one is a very unusual green barrel, and it's elongated emerald cut. It's called the Northern Light because it has that color as you look into the Northern Light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. there's plenty of green to keep me happy. And there's a stonking great emerald. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is really beautiful. Yes. Um, and that's behind the Yonka, so it really catches your attention. I don't think the world's ever seen, I've never seen an emerald of that quality, of that size. It's beautiful. Mm. Is it old Indian? It's not. It's from the modern time of uh, Muzo, Colombia. Is there a stone that you missed out on? Is there one that you feel that wasn't represented, that you went on a treasure hunt and you're still hunting? The one that we probably are always looking for in the world is a ruby. And I was uh, had a wonderful family uh, from New York that donated uh, through my committee 130 carat Mozambique ruby to the Smithsonian. Uh, the stone is beautiful, but it uh, had been heated. So we've never seen a gemstone of 100 carat in a ruby. And rubies have been identified for thousands of years, so we know it's there. So that's the only one we probably haven't seen. Because they just aren't around. It's never existed. We never existed. Mm. We've seen a 50 carat, but nothing over that and nothing that was of fine quality and unheated. Right. So did I mean, we miss out on it? No, you're not sure. Still have we looking. discovered it? <laughs> the hunt is still on. <laughs> I know it's vulgar to ask, but what is the most valuable stone in that collection? You know, value is a term of currency. Yeah. And something could be more rare. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not perceived as the highest value because it might not be in demand, right? Mm -hmm. Supply are and in demand. demand. Because they are used for engagement rings. So it's perceived that if you're having a, you're getting engaged, you're getting a diamond. So the, the demand is high. I'm not sure if it's a fair question of uh, between these these rarities, some of them might be very insulted. <laughs> I know, I know. And actually what I love, I was looking um, this morning at my pictures from the opening last night and there's a wonderful case outside the vault to go in there. I mean, if you want to have a look, it's on my Instagram, but I'll put up pictures of it and you go into the vault. But outside the vault, there's a case with a lot of different coloured gems of mm. different sizes going from one carat, ten, twenty... So you can see the extraordinary size of the 100-carat stones. But as you said, the one carat that looks incredibly tiny, <laughs> and in real life we would all be thrilled to have a one-carat stone, but next to these 100 carats, it does look like a little pea. But it is a very rare stone, and it's, um, Aaron was explaining that it's the only stone of its type that's been found in Burma. So you could argue that that one carat stone is going to have a higher value than a 10 carat diamond. Higher rarity. Higher rarity. Yes, but it wouldn't have that value. It might, if somebody thought, I want the only stone in the world that no one else can have. Anyone can have a diamond. So, so I guess that question would be, in white diamonds, we have quite a few in the world. Uh, you see them come up for auction a few times a year. So then you say, has we've never seen a sapphire like the miracle. Mm -hmm. Ever. So if this is the only one that we know has been never discovered, and in the Book of Famous Diamonds with Ian Belfour, we have identified quite a few diamonds that are over 100 carat. There's probably 100 diamonds that are over 100 carat. But a 100 carat diamond, especially a D internally flawless, still brings a great demanded value. But if the sapphire is more rare, what should be more money? 
I'm not saying it is. Just that's a very valid question as yeah. you had. What had brings more value? And so the rarity is personal to the person. It's very personal, and and in collection, uh, the sapphire or even the emerald is more rare than would be a diamond. And it's a beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We're all um, in tune to react to certain colors, aren't we? Mm. And for me, it's green and white. I won't roll up diamonds. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> but for for anyone looking at it, they're going to be drawn naturally yeah. to a different stone. So what will you do with it now, Robert? Will, will this travel? Will this exhibition go to other territories so other people can see it? We haven't determined that. That wasn't the intention. The intention right now is that we want the world to see these gems that no one ever has and to bring attention to great rarities, colors, and stones that are natural. I suppose the world would love to see the rest of it and love for it to travel, but none of that has been mm -hmm. determined. The mission is for this to be shown through mid-April. Right, and fingers crossed that at some point it might land up in the Natural History Museum in London or it might land up in Dubai or any other territory where listeners, because we have listeners all around the world, hopefully more can see it, not just me. <laughs> it would be great for the whole world to see it. Well, Robert, thank you very much and good luck with that ruby. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My children's children's children will be still hunting. <laughs> thank you very much and congratulations on this incredible collection. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. And if you've enjoyed it, share it any way you can, and we love to have a rating and a comment. We also have a new YouTube channel, so you can find us there, and you can also listen to the podcast through that. Join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget, when I'll be in Paris with somebody who's very hard to describe. She's done so many things. Suffice it to say that Vogue describe her simply as a fashion legend. Join me to find out who it is and to hear our fascinating conversation. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda. You can find our sponsors at foolygemstones.com and me at carolwalton.com.